Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? Or in the case of today, we're interviewing who? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and I'm so excited because my guest for this episode is the legendary director Henry Selick. Henry Selick is an animator, a director, you probably know his work from, oh I don't know, The Nightmare Before Christmas, also James and the Giant Peach, Coraline, truly one of stop motion's living legends. He has a new stop motion animated film out on Netflix, and he actually worked with Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key on it. It is called Wendell and Wild, and is about two demon brothers who enlist the aid of Cat, a tough teen with a load of guilt, I'm reading this off a thing if you can't tell, to some of them to the land of the living, and then it's about the intertwining of those stories. You don't technically have to have seen the film in order to listen to the interview. We don't spoil anything major, but it'll probably have a bit more meaning and make a bit more sense if you watch the film first. So without further ado, here's we're interviewing who? So my first question is, you talked a lot about how Kat is connected to, to her father through music. What is your fondest musical connection or shared experience with either your sons or your own parents? <laughs> there was no connection with my parents. <laughs> just just two different, um, a couple, the, the first concert my older son, Harry wanted to see, was Bob Dylan, and I, I wasn't <laughs> even a fan of Bob Dylan, and, and uh, Harry was, um, let's see, 14. But we all went, and I became a fan of Bob Dylan because of uh, going to that concert with him. And uh, my younger son, uh, th they're both grown men now. This is, you know, a while ago. But my younger son, George, is now 23 when he's about 12. Be because I knew a concert pr promoter, um, we, we went and saw Lady Gaga because he was a fan of Lady Gaga. And it was, uh, it was pretty intense for someone his age, but you know, definitely another great bonding moment. Your, your sons actually have some pretty good musical taste, I think. Those are some uh, the epic legendary performers that I guess they got to introduce you to. Yeah, yeah, right. really, at the end of the day, that's how it worked. Do you consider yourself a little monster now? You deal with different type of monsters. Very talented. You know what? I love, I love, I, she's an incredible songwriter, singer, and her weird costumes. I love them. I, I think she got a little too, you know, restricted in, in, in costumes. I want her to go back and put on the meat outfit again. Or the, the bubbles or the Kermits, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you had mentioned that the hell in Wendell and Wilde is for the danged, not the damned. What aspect of yours do you think would be most likely to put you at risk for going to hell for the danged? <laughs> so what are your vices basically <laughs> oh i don't know um spending too much time on my projects and not not spending enough time with my family that's certainly a, a vice and uh uh i can be a workaholic so that'd be probably my number one reason to go i'm not proud of it i don't have other vices i can i can share publicly that's fair. So what you're telling me is hell for the dang is just full of animators and artists. <laughs> I, I think I'd know a lot of folks down there, uh, but it'd be a very fun place. Come on. It's crooked lawyers. Mm, yeah. Okay. It's meter maids or whatever right. they're called. It's, it's uh, the, the jerks, not all of them at the DMV and uh, they, they got, a, there's a worse place for me. I'm sure. The oh. animators. At your, at your, you know, you, you get to be the judge of that. Somebody else might get to judge that depending on your beliefs. But in terms of scare them, don't scar them. I have to tell you, when I went and saw Coraline in theaters, there was like a mother and a very little girl there. And she kept begging to be taken out of the movie and her mom wouldn't do it. Oh, so you may have mom. accidentally scarred at least one child. But what scares or scars you? 
you know, even that was called, it was PG parental guidance. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel, I feel bad for any kids that were too young to see Coraline. Cause it's really scary. As far as for me, I can't, I actually can't handle slasher films, you know, some of the mo modern horror genres, uh, like Saw and those sort of films. I, I just can't handle it. Um, they got too, too good at being realistic. You know, I love some of the classic horror films that could be pretty depraved, but they just didn't have the techniques to have the makeup and special effects. Technology has ruined slasher films for <laughs> Speaking of sort of technology and advancements, this is more of a character design thing. So this is just a random segue, but can I ask about the decision to leave the face seams visible for the characters? Just art style or technical yeah. or? Back on Coraline, we, we had uh, face seams. We, and this guy, Martin Minier, came up with the idea of using 3D printers to create in between faces, between key expressions. But we also, with this guy, Mike Catrela, came up with this thing. Well, if we split them, then we can multiply the number of upper faces with lower and have way more range of expression. Back then, I wanted to leave the seams in, but the money people said, you're crazy, we'll lose everybody. But I always knew it wouldn't be a problem that people, after watching for you know three minutes, five minutes, they weren't seeing them anymore. Or at least that's what I've experienced showing things to people. So it was, um, it was a creative decision along with showing those seams. I also, there's more mistakes made. There's more bumps. It's not as smooth. I did not want it to look like uh, CG. I wanted to be more obviously stop motion animation. So that, that detail goes along with the overall aesthetic. Let's, um, let people know it was all hand touched and moved around. Yeah, there's the the tactile feeling, which I get, it, you know, it's missing from so many things these days. Like it's like you and Phil Tippett are left doing the like, let's feel it, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's live it lived in. We're gonna take a quick break and be right back. And we're back. Well, this is sort of related to the design, but this is honestly one of the most diverse casts I've seen in any medium. And it sounds like some of that came from Jordan, right? Saying, hey, I want to see people who look like me on screen. But you really went above and beyond. Like I, I, one of my co-hosts is, you know, in a wheelchair. I'm Asian American. And I was like, wow, there's two of us in this movie. Like we're both represented in this movie. We never get that. But, you know, what was that process like in terms of expanding, you know, diversity and, and keeping it authentic? Yeah. One of it is, is simply artistic and not even having to do with social issues. One is going back to, to Coraline, I wanted a very unlikely friend for Coraline. It's the Pacific Northwest, land of the whitest people, of the whitest of the white. I wanted to have an unexpected friend there, this kid, YB, who's African-American. And then, and then this other character, Bobinski, he's just this Russian guy who lives upstairs and eats a lot of beets. But I decided to make him blue because I was just tired of all the same colors. So it's a really like, okay, well, th that's an artistic thing. When Jordan suggested that we should shift the protagonist from being um, Sister Helly, who was in my original story, to, to Kat, I said, I'm a little worried about comparisons to Coraline. I said, well, you won't worry. Um, you shouldn't worry if we make her a person of color. And he didn't care any color but white, just so that it was you know, something more interesting. I said, well, then she's gonna be African-American. And I just sort of like fell in love with the idea of, um, of building a, a new kind of a world for animation. And it, it wasn't like there was quotas or anything like that. 
And we didn't ever want that film to be about race. And Jordan was really, he fucking knows, you know, he's biracial, identifies as black. He knew if anything was sort of trading there because we, we didn't want to give people an excuse to like, oh, that's what they're trying to say. They're trying to sell this message. So it was, it was simply about what's cool and, you know, and also working with some famous people like James Hong, who's the, the I mean, he's, he's been in more movies than anyone in history. He's remarkable and so much fun to work with. Or uh, Tantu Cardinal, who uh, is the social worker, who's, you know, playing a Native American. Those are people I always want to work with. And it just sort of went on to, um, and like, it's, it's like, okay, what kind of girls go to this private school? Well, if they were living in America, they would come and visit and realize it's totally run down and they would never go. So it's almost all foreigners who only saw the brochure from 20 years ago. I mean, I can go on and on about, yeah, there's story reasons and there's personal reasons, but it was just sort of, um, for me, it was like building a really cool cast um, with a lot of interesting characters and colors and um, backgrounds and always trying to have something real about who they, who they were that relates um, to them as characters, like some, some detail, even stuff, you know, there's all this stuff that you'll never need to know about, like Raul, who was Ramona, Raul Cocolato, um, he actually has Mayan blood in him. And so his style of uh, painting, he's sort of painting like the, the codices of the Mayans. No one needs to know that, but for me, it's just fun. Mm -hmm. No, it was great. I like I picked up on that, right? I I, I was like, oh, okay, and I I you know we could there's a whole separate conversation about the trans storyline, but it just <laughs> I I just want to say thank you because it felt lived in and like not performative, you know. It's just you built a world that is the similar to the world we live in, but fantastical. So I I just loved that part of it, especially. <laughs> what do you think the biggest risk is, and that's whatever that means to you, um, that you've taken in your careers that has paid off the most. <laughs> Well, I never, I'd, I'd say I was a pretty talented artist as, as a kid and then young adult. And, you know, I could have become an illustrator. And I had this mentor, this guy, Stanley Meltzoff, who, who was a very famous artist. I grew up in New Jersey and this is the East Coast stuff. I hadn't seen him in a few years. And I went, I showed him some of my work and he said, oh yeah, I've got a, my, my old rep in New York and could get you work. And then I, I had taken a first animation class and he like flipped out, your crazy animation is factory work. Don't do it. <laughs> so so um, I'd say that was, okay, that was the first big risk going into it. I ended up at Disney with all these young people who their whole lives had wanted to work at Disney, but I wasn't one of them. I, I want to do other things. So it was like, oh my God, this is hard, but I learned so much. And then, you know, so getting into animation was a big risk. And then the other other big risk was pursuing the least successful type of animation, stop motion. I just, but I loved it more than the others. I had tried everything and that's what I love the most. And, and it's, uh, it's harder to get these movies uh, to get backing for them and so forth, but you know, it's worth it. You know, I, I will have made less movies in my life, but um, a few of them I think will stick around for a good while. I would agree with that probably um, growing up. Who was your favorite fictional character? Ooh, man, I, you know, I could throw out some names, but they're not, they're not really going to be favorites. I don't know. Uh, Peter Pan from the original uh, play. I mean, how, how old? Holden Caulfield from when I'm a little older. 
was certainly um, impactful. And then lots of characters from Kurt Vonnegut. I was a big fan of his when I was in high school, uh, Billy Pilgrim. But there's, there's no like one that leaps up that I wanted to be. But those are those are a few. Okay. What is the first film that you remember seeing in theaters that you were the impetus to going to? So your parents weren't like, oh, we're going to see this. You're like, I have to see this movie. Please, can we go? Ooh, that, that never happened. <laughs> okay. The first, the first the first movie that I would have gone on my own or with my cousins or something. Okay, sure. Yeah. The first one that, but you were the one who got to pick. Yeah, okay. So my mother was from the South and I used to, I mean, the, the bad deep South. And I, we would go every summer and spend time. And I had a bunch of cousins and they were great storytellers. But there was um, the Saturday matinee. There was no, they had no rating system. So I said, hey, this looks pretty good. I was probably 11 and my cousins were my age and younger. And we all went to see Rosemary's Baby. Oh <laughs> it's like, ah! so, <laughs> that, so. That might be a scar them, not scare them. <laughs> choice oh, no, on no, that was, that was too much. That was too much for all of us. We could, but none of the, none of the parents do anything about it. And they, right. they let anyone, whatever it was, 250 and an RC bottle cap. <laughs> You're in. That is that is a memorable first yeah. time. For good, for better and worse. That is a cinematic defining experience. Yeah, that was me leading, leading young people astray. Uh, uh, you know, more power to you. That's, that's for the damned or the danged maybe. It's like accidentally picking the wrong movie. Yeah. So how do you define personal success now, which whatever that means to you versus when you were younger? I don't know. I think, I think it's personal success. Well, there's two, there's two completely different things, but they, they connect. I mean, I've always wanted to make my own stuff. I'm a musician, you know, kind of an amateur one at this point, but I, the songs I would write, learning to play instruments. I just wanted to get really good at that. And when it comes to the films and art, it's, it's always been, I can't do it your way. I want to do it. I have to do it my way. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not a collaborator because I'm a total collaborator. I work with a lot of really talented people. I want to hire everybody who's better at their, that job than I would be. And I think I've become a much better collaborator and less of a dictator since Coraline till now. I think that the experience of everyone on, on the crew on this last film, One in a While, was probably, they said it a lot. I think they're telling the truth, the best work experience of their lives. And uh, on Carline, I was like, uh, take no prisoners. This is how it has to be. It, it was just maybe the situation and the time. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question at all, but a personal success, trying to integrate family and work. And, you know, I, you know if my crime being a workaholic, I, I still need to do better for personal success in that area. That's fair. Is there something like in particular that changed between Coraline and now that you feel like sort of opened you up to the less letting go a little bit of the dictator thing? At first, I thought a lot of the people who worked on that film, I, I, I it was like three teams of people, locals from Portland. I thought of them as big babies and who wanted to leave work early when the sun was out. And then the, the hardcore people I worked with before from the US and then a lot of people from England and Europe and that one third of people I've, you know, I, I needed them, but they, I hated their work ethic. And, uh, but I learned to deal with it better later. I just, I just, I learned it. Um, it takes a lot of extra time and work, but to deal with everybody as an individual and just like 
hear what they're saying and try to not cut them off. I became a better listener. And so I think I was able to get the work I needed by just adapting a little to their style. It's a, it's a good life lesson across the board, I think, you know, or at least I could use a little bit more of that. So my last question is, what do you admire most about Cat? Well, I love Cat, and um, and a big part of that is what Lyric Ross brought to that character. You know, the the um, voice uh, performer. What I love most about her that, or not even love, but just admire, because I, I think they're slightly different. <laughs> I'd say I'd say that she does face up. You know, in, in the in the part of the film that you haven't seen yet, she's holding so tight to something. She's holding so tight to this idealized past, and and has a shell of armor. She doesn't want to let anyone else in. And, you know, she's cool. She's a badass. And, and I like those things. But what I, I admire the most is that she makes the choice to, to change. She steps outside of what she's been comfortable with and does something for the greater good. And she lets people into her heart. And then and she reaches out and um, basically finds a future that's going to work, but you have to see that part of the film. But that's, that's what I admire most when push comes to shove, she makes the hard choice. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> like this was amazing. And I, yeah. Oh, it was great. Great to um, meet you. I, I sure hope you like the rest of the movie. A huge thank you to Henry Selleck, words I never thought I'd get to say. Gwendolyn Wilde is out streaming now on Netflix. And if you liked this episode, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.